0: Good morning again. It is a great time to celebrate the one-year anniversary of First Watch. Uh, Nate uh, told us earlier, it's uh, it's amazing what God has done in this uh, ministry, and I'm thankful for my team that I have, and uh, I can't, of course, without the Lord as well, but uh, can't do it without my team. I'm so thankful for that. But if you have your Word of God, which I hope you do, uh, turn to First uh, Peter chapter one. and We'll be uh, diving into uh, verses three through nine, and I want to focus on the idea of religious affections, and that's a seems like an archaic term, uh, religious affections and. Uh, could be misconstrued, but uh, the famous American American Puritan writer and preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards uh, pretty much, in a way, defined religious affections, and and we'll we'll dive deep into that. So, First Peter chapter one, starting in verse three, and we'll go to verse nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a while, little while, if necessary, you have been greed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. You rejoice with with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we study Your Word, that... Your servant Peter had penned for us, Lord, and I pray that Your words again will convict us to help to have genuine affections for You. That our mind is set upon You, upon Christ. Prepare us and be with this time, Lord, may it be glorified to you. We ask all these things in Christ's name, Amen. Peter's uh, epistle here. We uh, understand is he's talking to people who are and under heavy persecution, and we see that in uh, verse one. Who's who the recipients of this letter are, and Peter is encouraging them to endure to. Not uh, forsake the hope that has been given to them, and Peter and the, the other apostles as well as the uh, first century believers, they didn't come to uh, a faith in Christ with a flippantly. They didn't do it uh, uh, you know willy nilly. It was sincere because who would follow Christ knowing that you might be killed. They knew the cost. And Peter is encouraging them that your hope is in Christ, your affections are for God. That is the living hope you have. Their faith was real. And we know through... Scripture and through church history that early Christians were heavily persecuted. They were killed, martyred for the faith. They stood the test of time. They did not forsake Christ. They were bold in their faith. They had a genuine love for Christ. They forsook, forsook all their needs and poured into the church of Christ. Men, we look at our our society, the Americanized cultural Christianity, and we see it's it's uh, it's a loss. Like it's just a hobby. Well, Christianity is not a hobby. It's a genuine affection. It's a relationship. It's a love for the Lord. And we see we see like Jonathan Edwards and. In his time in the 18th century, it, where Christians were making false professions of faith, they would enter the church and do the act that all pious and that they're religious, and then go out into society and we're heathens. And we all know that. We know somebody in our circle of people at work. School, or even in our, our churches that make a profession that their lifestyle is not mirrored. Edwards knew this and he felt the pressure of this and the concern for the false professions of faith. He kicked off, as we all know, the Great Awakening here in the United States, he saw the decaying words of people in their the words of people and uh, people's lives, and the depravity and the lawlessness in their lives. And he wrote this masterpiece uh, titled "The Religious Affections." And he addressed false religious affections, and that were rampant during this time. The emotionalism the elitist intellectualism that he saw inside society, not only in society, but inside the church. Edwards will go on to write, "...there are false affections and there are, tr- there are true. A man's having much affection don't prove that he has any true religion, but if he has no affection, it proves that he has no true religion." In Edwards was going to write in his book, The Religious Affection. It is no new thing that much false religion should prevail at a time of great reviving of true religion. If you know anything about the Great Awakening, there was a great revival. People would come to a genuine saving faith in Christ, God was moving. We see in America, just like in Edwards' time, that uh, just the preaching wasn't solid. We see in our society the TED talks and the, the 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 motivational speakers to pump you up to go into the week and to come back on Sunday to get high again. Religion is not a drug. And Edwards knew that people had misdirected affections. What is your love? What do you hate? What do you desire? What in your life, men, has held you captive? What takes your time? What do you think about throughout your daily lives? Is it things of the world? Or is it things of God? And that's what Edwards was writing about. This is what Peter, we see in our text, that he is encouraging the believers who are persecuted to have genuine faith, they have a living hope, they have an inheritance, they have a, a genuine salvation. And all what? Greatly rejoice in these things. Joy that's inexpressible. They have this love, this affection for Christ, because of all that He has done. And Edwards will go on say, ministers and others have no warrant from Christ to encourage persons that are of contrary character and behavior to think they are converted. We shouldn't encourage others that who make a false profession of faith to. To uh, that live uh, heathen, pagan lifestyles, uh, we should uh, see that as a mission field to evangelize, proclaim the gospel over and over and over again to them. Family members, friends, many of you know you probably look at uh, Ligonier does uh, ministries does a, a survey every year. It's called the State of Theology, and if you look at it you can somewhat be encouraged but majority you're discouraged about the results of all those who polled or they pulled a, a survey of the, those in the United States and evangelicals people who claim to be Christians 65% of evangelicals in the United States believe everyone is born innocent Fifty-six percent of evangelicals believe God accepts worship from all other religions. That includes Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Thirty-three percent of evangelicals, Paul, believe Jesus was a just a great teacher, and is not actually God. And 37 percent of evangelicals believe gender identity is a matter of choice. And you can probably see that number rising each year. And last, 33 percent of evangelicals disagree that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. The staggering these numbers you see at this the survey. Just, just imagine the, the time that Edwards was living. He's seeing the, probably the same numbers, the percentages of these people professing. Uh, but I'm sure he didn't have any issues with uh, people mixing on their gender. <laughs> but we're seeing it increasing. We live in a world with people who do not take their faith seriously. In America, there are, there's no heavy persecution, we know. We don't live in these high-risk uh, countries that are that you fear you have to hide your Bibles or some memorize books of the Bible and recite them at church uh, congregations, you know, in meetings. There are constant fear of being killed. And I believe la- last Sunday, Tim Carnes talked about where they kill the children in front of the parents. We don't experience that here. Persecution it drives your faith, it's a testing, and we'll see later on, it tests your faith. Here in America, believers, professing believers, have become soft in their faith. And these religious affections, uh, they, they fall in these false religious affections. They fall short. Uh, they fall in this trap of false assurance. They, they think the Word of God is more of a guideline and that they don't need to obey. If they don't even believe that Jesus was God, why should they obey Him? What does it mean to have affections, right? There's two faculties. Of it is your understanding of what you 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 love, your desire. That understanding what it is, and the will. The second is the will by which you like or dislike, love or hate, approve or reject. A lot of times, more than not, men have set their attention on perilous and inconsequential things of life, trivial, throughout their trivial things throughout their life. I see that work. Men dedicate their lives to their job. But their home life is a wreck. Their marriage is a wreck. Their walk with Christ is in shambles. Misplaced affections is will cause these detriments in your life. And this morning, I want us to consider three attributes of this, having a religious affection for God. And we'll see this play out through our passage. First, we'll see the cause of our religious affection. And then second, we'll see the crucible of our religious affection. And then lastly, the joy of our religious affection. And the first, in verses 3-5, through five, is our source of religious affection, Look at uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. First, look what Peter is talking about. He's saying, Blessed be God. Blessed be God to Father. Give him praise for what I'm about to say. This list goes on for the many blessings your inheritance, this living hope that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, your salvation that will be complete at His second coming, when you are standing face to face with Him, we must, our affection must be first glorifying the Lord, giving Him praise and honor. We need to be thankful for that. We're thankful for His his blessings, but we need to be thankful for By praising Him, honoring Him. These are affections for Christ, affections for God the Father. He gives us these blessings that we see that Peter's talking about. And I mentioned that it's according to His great mercy. Because He is merciful and gracious that we have this living hope. That we can have genuine religious affections for Him. That we have this inheritance. We have a Redeemer, Christ Jesus, who saves us from our sin. He alone grants and gives mercy to us. Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Rich in mercy. in Ephesians 1, 3, Paul goes on, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, what? In Christ. As a believer, we should have a natural affection for Christ, to love Him, to want to serve Him. Cause God is gracious and merciful. He, He's kind and he, the affection of God, our Savior, appeared in Christ Jesus. Our our affections, our praise need to be directed towards Christ. And then again in verse 3, not only that of because of God's great mercy that He has caused us to be born again He is the source of our salvation He caused it we didn't this would drive us to have a love and a desire to serve Him to be captivated by Him our lives should be all about Christ. God is our causation of our salvation. He saves. We bring nothing to the table. The only thing we bring is our sin that nailed Him to the cross. And it's there. Our regeneration, our rebirth, our new birth, being born again is not corrupted. In verse 23 of chapter 1, Peter says, For you have been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Not only that God causes our salvation, He's the source of it. That He, born again to a living hope. Our hope is not dead. It will never fail. The hope that God gives will never fail. And this living hope is found in our inheritance. It's not only found in our inheritance, it's found in our salvation. In verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 4: To obtain an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. Verse 5: Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at the list that Peter gives about your inheritance: it's incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. Kept in heaven for you. This, this God's mercy of giving us a, li- a living hope means that our hope is not empty or meaningless. This living hope of our inheritance is genuine and it never dies. Our hope is, does not put to shame in Romans 5.5. 5. It's because of the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 6, verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed and one which enters within the veil. This hope that we're giving men are is gives us an assurance of our salvation that's secure because we know it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's secured and kept in heaven. What a perfect spot to have an inheritance in the hands of Christ Jesus. In the world we see people inherit things, properties, material things, but those will perish. Those will be corrupted by rust, decay. But our inheritance that we receive from Christ will not decay, will not rust. Those treasures, those inheritances are forever and are secure and are perfect. Israel received the earthly inheritance, but believer, you're receiving a spiritual inheritance. It's only found in Christ Jesus. Our inheritance is not of this world. We must see this and understand that it's not of this world. We don't see our inheritance until we stand before our Lord. And this should drive our affection for Christ. It should drive our love, our service, genuine true religious affections for Him. So this, this your inheritance is incorruptible. And Paul uses this word incorruptible or imperishable in some translations to show that this inheritance, inheritance unlike earthly inheritances, will not perish or be corrupted. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things they do it into, to receive a corruptible crown, but we, but we an uncorruptible uh, incorruptible crown. Sorry. Listen, men, your inheritance will last forever. That's great news. We don't have to worry about it because it's secure. And Peter now says it's undefiled. This is without blemish, without stain it doesn't lose its beauty. And the Greek word that he uses, Peter uses for undefiled is you can be found in Hebrews 7:26 in describing Jesus's sinlessness for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Your inheritance has no stain. It's unblemished. It's also unfading. Simply put, it will not fade. It will last forever. It won't lose its luster. It will remain new. Peter would go on to write in chapter 5, verse 4, use the same word for unfading. And when The chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And lastly, your inheritance is secured. It's in heaven with Christ, where there's no rust or decay, no sin, it will not perish. Heaven is the most secure place. It's like the Fort Knox, or that place in Colorado was a NORAD or something like that, but it's more secure. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, writes about the believer's inheritance. He says, Talk of princes and kings and potentates, their inheritance is but a pitiful foot of land across which the bird's wings can soon direct its flight. But the broad acres of the Christian cannot be measured by eternity. He is rich without a limit to his wealth. He is blessed without without a boundary to his bliss. Our inheritance has no boundaries. It cannot be measure, measured. and our, our salvation, our living hope, our inheritance is all protected by the power of God as we see in verse 5. This is through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All these things is protected by Christ. Nothing you can do can take it away. Nothing anywhere else outside of you can take it away. If God is for us, who is against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? Who is separated from the love of Christ? As Paul writes in Romans 31-39... to Affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. If a man had a target mindset on Christ, it was his Apostle Paul. He had joy. I talked about last time Philippians, he had joy in the Lord through persecution. He would stand with Christ if He was the last man standing. He had a genuine love for Christ. Peter did too as well. Because both would be martyred for the faith. We can so easily lose sight of that, man. Because we're not persecuted. We're not being attacked. We can go on our daily lives Hiding in the crowd. Not putting our Christianity out there on the table for people to see. They can be white noise. But men, we're not called to be white noise, to hide in the background. We are to Go into the world. Make disciples. Proclaim the gospel. And don't do it in fear. Don't fear man, but fear God. For your salvation is secure in Christ. Peter will go on to end... Uh, Verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have that positional salvation once we come to a saving faith in Christ. we We stand right before God. His righteousness is imputed upon you. Your sin is upon Him. Then you have your progressive sanctification, you're growing into Christ's likeness through your life here on earth. But then your salvation, what Peter's saying here, is that the last time will be complete because you'll have your glorification when you stand before the Almighty. Yeah, I men, we will struggle, we will fall, we will suffer, stumble in our walk. But we need to maintain our religious affections for Christ. We need to maintain the love and the desire to serve Him. The passion, the zeal to honor Him. To be like Him. To make Him known. We need to decrease so He can increase hate to break it to you, men, we need to realize that it's not about you. It's about Christ. And Him and Him alone. Your salvation will reach that culmination when you're glorified. What a great thing to look forward to. This should stir up the believer, men, that one day you'll stand and you receive your inheritance before our Savior and our Lord. And this should stir up your affection for Him while you're here on earth. You should strive for the goal, strive for the finish line, finish well. And we see Peter, the source, he's saying the source of your salvation, your inheritance, your living hope, is in God alone. And now, he draws our attention to the the crucible of life, the testing of your faith. That's the second point, a crucible of religious affections. Look at verse 6. And in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I find this amazing And it's encouraging to hear Peter, an apostle who is martyred and he's encouraging the, the church that's being persecuted heavily to greatly rejoice in your trials. How many of us can say that when we go through a trial? To me, the trials that I endure and Maybe you endure, some of you endure. It's, it's meaning—it's meaningless in a sense that it's not compared to what the church is being persecuted on. They're being killed. They're, again, they're being tormented, driven out of their homes, all because of their faith. Yeah, we go through trials and sufferings in life, the loss of a loved one, A job, illness. But how often do we greatly rejoice in those? How often do we look into ourselves and reflect, the woe is me? I like to call it the Eeyore syndrome. You know, nobody loves me. You know, walking around all depressed. But you're looking into yourself you don't have the right mindset the right focus on Christ you don't have, your religious affection has turned from genuine true religious affections to the false if you're self reflecting on it's not me and that's what edwards is fighting against in his time Peter is telling the Christians, Yes, you have been under all this distress, sorrow, and unhappiness, but you have been greatly rejoicing through all these trials. And they're various ones, there's not a specific trial. And why are they going through these various trials? Look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith. Be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Your faith what may be found to result to, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of your faith, men, will result in the praise and glory and honor when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. He will reward you. He will praise you and give you glory and honor because you endured through the trial. When you reflect on your circumstances and allow them to consume you rather than going to your knees in prayer and diving into the Bible, seeking Fellowship with the church, like-minded believers, fellowship. All this can be like quicksand and just drive you deeper and deeper into the ground. It will slowly devour you until you can't see. Your eyes will be covered, obscured, And you have to fight, men. You have to fight to uh, fix your eyes on Christ, to endure, to go to the Lord in prayer, to be counseled by His Word, to mortify your carnal affections, to mortify your sins that are, are pulling you back from Christ, pulling you back from your service to Him. You will have to fight, endure, man, endure through these times. Strive for genuine, true religious affections, and you'll see that your trials will have a, a purpose, and there'll, there'll be an end result, and there'll be a immediate purpose that is training you and teaching you to. Fully rely upon Him and Him alone. You're not going to go through life without any trials or sufferings. But the Word of God will instruct you on how to endure those times. It will comfort, encourage, and exhort, and even convict you. But not only will you receive praise, honor, and glory, but we will give praise, honor, and glory to Jesus Christ for what He has done in our lives. As soon as we receive that crown of our rewards, we immediately cast it down at His feet because He is the only one who truly deserves our rewards, what we do in this life, our affections. He deserves the crown. No matter what you go through, men, these various trials, how heavy and tense, all these all kinds of trials in your life, never take your eyes off of Christ. Not only never take your eyes off of Christ, but do it with great joy. Rejoice in them. Because there's a purpose for your sufferings, man. I like how the Puritan... Samuel Rutherford wrote, he said, Think not much of a storm upon the sea when Christ is in the ship. Christ is in the ship when you're on the storms of the sea. He's with us. We have no reason to be dragged down by our trials and sufferings because we know that Christ is with us He'll see us through it. And we can greatly rejoice in that. I know there's some others here that are going through difficult times. I encourage you. I encourage you. Have the religious affections, the love, the desire to serve Christ. You're going through the crucible. But it's a purifying one. It's a testing. And you're not alone. Christ is with you. And lastly, our third point, the joy of religious affections. The joy of religious affections. In verse 8, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter's writing. Yes, he spent three years with Christ. He knows what Christ looks like. He loved Christ. He had the foot-and-mouth syndrome. Peter did, right? But at the end... Christ re- he was redeemed right he, when Jesus asked him Peter if he loved him and Peter said yes and, and three times and then Christ would uh, redeem him through that I like, guess you serve me your affections are for me and then he would stick his foot in his mouth as well, well we can all do that in our lives it's so easily so we can't punish Peter too much on that but Peter he's telling the believers here just like us we have not seen Christ but they they loved him not seeing him they loved him sometimes it's a hard concept to wrap our minds around because we have relationships with other people Rela- our love is relational. Like if you don't see somebody, how can you love them? Well, they had a love for them because what? They knew them. He knew Christ. They knew Christ. And they believed in Him. And, it, and this belief is brings great joy that's inexpressible. And Peter is hoping that that this will animate and quicken the believer to endure through these various trials. You're believing Christ. You're going through these trials. You came to a, a saving faith. You're born again. You haven't seen the Christ that saved you, but you love Him. And you believe in Him. And through this you are rejoicing with joy that's inexpressible how how can we have the same mindset as our believers Peter is addressing yeah we haven't seen Christ but do we love him do we have an affection for him do we believe him and do we have this joy that we can't express in words? That it just consumes us? This joy, and this love that we have for Christ? Is it genuine love for Him? And Jesus gives this great encouraging words in John uh, chapter 20, verse 29. He says, Because you have seen Me, have you believed? Blessed are those who who do not see and yet believe. And Peter, for the word the word love, he's talking about, it. he's using the indicative form of the Greek word agape. It's just this love that they have. This genuine love. And he's exhorting these believers because they have not become downtrodden, are melancholy because of their various trials. But they're exceeding filled with love and joy for Christ. They're not taking their focus off of Him. They're enduring through these, these trials and these difficulties. Men, do you have this type of love for Christ? Do you rejoice and exalt Him during trials? Or do you just have self pity? Do you easily lose hope? Do you easily lose uh, easily lose your joy? There's a difference between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is from happy means. It's from circumstances. Joy is from God alone. Our joy is from God alone. We need to greatly rejoice. We can say like the psalmist in Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in You be glad. Let, him, let them ever sing for joy. And may You shelter them, that those who love Your name may exult in You. Edwards would write about this enjoyment in the Lord and His religious affections, saying, God is the highest good for, of all the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops. But God is the ocean. Do you have that enjoyment that Edwards is describing here in the Lord? Your affections must be solely set upon the Lord. Your joy must be set upon the Lord. And can we say that we thirst for God? Do we thirst for God, for His Word? Do we want to meditate on it day and night? Are we like a deer that pants for the water brooks? Does our soul pant for the Lord? You need to declare like the psalmist said in Psalm one nineteen ten. With all my heart, I have sought you. Have you sought God? And do not let me stray from your commandments. You have that desire not to stray from His Word. Your affections, and one of the sources that develop your affections is the Word of God. Men, you need to dive into the Word of God. We all make New Year's resolutions, and I'm sure some of us have already failed. It's always the gyms that have packed, and two weeks later, they're empty. Alright? But, men, this is serious. Studying the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, being in the Word of God, is a life Long daily thing. It's not a New Year's resolution. If we go into a mindset of having this is a, my resolution, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, you're going to fail. You will fail. You set the standard upon you. No, man, just do. Read the Word. And finally, we'll close with this: How do you develop these religious affections for God? What can you do, man? You need to be in prayer. Your prayer life needs to be one that you haven't seen before. You need to be on your knees constantly. Do you pray for your spouse? Do you pray for your children? Do you pray with your spouse? Do you pray with your children? Men, if you have a wife and you have kids, guess what? You are the example to them. They will mimic how you pray when you ask them to pray. I guarantee it. If you pray, your prayer life is just robotic, guess what? Your kids will pray like a robot, they'll follow the leader. Men, be in prayer. That's how you commune with God. We so easily forsake our prayer life because things are going easy. Alright, I'm smooth sailing. I don't need to go to the Lord in prayer. Men, yes you do. Your life's not perfect. I hate to tell you. Secondly, commit to reading the Bible. Not only reading, but studying it. Study the Bible. Don't just have it as a check mark. Like, oh, this morning I read, I prayed. It's a check mark. No, it's serious. And third, meditate on the Word of God. And this is reflecting on what you just read. It's taking it in. It's letting it saturate your mind and your heart. What is God saying in His Word? What is he teaching me? And four, you need to faithfully attend church. There's no such thing as a lone Christian. You can sit at home like I just need my Bible and that's it. No, you can't forsake the uh, the gathering of one another. You need to sit under faithful preaching. You need a fellowship and Worshipped with like-minded believers. People need to see your life, and you need to see other people's life, lives, and be able to know if there's something wrong, or how you can minister to them, how they can minister to you. And And fifthly, start taking sermon notes when you're in service. Develop that mindset and that pattern, that discipline. Of putting to memory into into your heart that what you, the pastor's preaching to you, that you can go back and study, go set it in stone. Six fellowship. We already touched on that fellowship with one another. Call one another up and you know go have coffee and fellowship with them and. Pray for them, another believer and come alongside them. practice the one another's with them. And seven, I put fasting not it's not commanded in the word, but not many of us fast when we're going through trials or difficulties or something heavy upon us. Fasting draws you, draws you to prayer. It draws you to the word. it helps you focus. And lastly, discipleship. Man, we are, all are called to be discipled and eventually to disciple others. And all these things will help develop this genuine religious affection for Christ. need to have a genuine reflection or religious affection for Christ. I end with this. Edwards writes, He that truly sees the divine, transcendent, supreme glory of those things which are divine, does that, as it were, know their divinity intuitively. He not only argues that they are divine, but he sees that they are are divine. He sees that they... That in them, wherein divinity chiefly consists, for in his this glory does mainly consist the true notion of divinity. God is God, and distinguished from all other beings, and exalted above Him, chiefly by His divine beauty, which is infinitely diverse from all other beauty. They therefore that see the stamp of this glory in divine things, they see divinity in them, they see God in them, And so, see Him to be divine. Have that mindset of religious affections for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for Your Word. I pray that You stir up in each one of us a genuine, a true affection for You, a true love for You, Help us to rejoice in these things, these trials that we may endure and that we will soon endure. I pray that for these men here, that You encourage them this year. Help them to be faithful in their homes, to, as spiritual leaders, to take it seriously. Lord, I pray that you just be with them. That this First Watch of ministry will be an encouragement to them. That we can come alongside one another to help develop this religious affections for you. That our desires and our passion are true. Lord, we do give you the praise, honor, and glory. And we are thankful for all that you have done. And help us. Help us to love you as you love us. Help us to rejoice in you, the source of our joy. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.